All right, we're just going to jump into the text and read through what we're going to cover this morning. And we'll back up and give the big context. James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. James, chill out. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept you back, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You shall live on the earth, uh, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the, field, fruits of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Well, that was pleasant. So this is, again, I mentioned last week, these, these uh, what we dealt with last week, where we are now, this is where it feels like the James is being really hard. It feels like James is passing some judgment within the body of Christ himself as he's giving this exhortation and this warning. But remember, so as we sit in the overall context of James, last week we really pressed into just this lens of the political conflicts that were going on in his time and in his culture. 
And if we back out of that a little bit and just focus on relationships, every single one of us is engaged with relationships with other human beings. We are told by being a creature of the God who created the heavens and the earth, he has created us to fellowship with him, to be one with him, to be united with him, to be in a relationship with him. And James' entire focus through his encouragement is may that be your primary relationship in all of your activities in life. But he's dealing with our human hearts and the relationships that we have with one another in our households, in the body of Christ, in our workplaces, in our culture. And the exhortation is to be that doer. You believe in the Lord, that is good. You believe in his word, that is good. You seek him and you ask him for the wisdom that you lack and trust that he is going to give you the wisdom that you need in the circumstance, that is good. And the constant exhortation is all of that is very good and it's very needed and necessary, but now do it and live it out. In this immediate section that James has been, you know, a very long thread of exhortation, he's focused on the words that come out of our mouth. And as we begin this morning, when it's do not speak evil, do not slander one another, the whole idea is that our tongues have a great amount of power. And with our tongue, we ought not to be slandering one another and and judging our brothers and sisters. The idea of judgment, it's being critical, finding fault, and condemning. So, just, and I'm not going to have you raise your hands, and I'll, I'll, let's do it this way. I'll give you my personal testimony. Um, it's really hard not to be judgmental of other people when you think that you know it all. And when I came, when I became a believer in Jesus Christ, and I'm being exposed to his word from Genesis to Revelation, and being taught well, and again, reading, studying, having my life transformed, I got puffed up in my knowledge and my understanding of the word of God in contrast to what I saw as the lack of it elsewhere. I came to faith in Jesus Christ in Salt Lake City, Utah, where the LDS religion is a cult in the sense that it proclaims things about God and about Jesus that are absolutely untrue and are not founded in the Bible whatsoever. It is a twisting. So in that culture... I found, myself puffed, I found myself puffed up in the knowledge, in my knowledge of God's word. And I had friends who were LDS. I had coworkers who were LDS. And I got puffed up. I got angry. I got arrogant. I got mouthy. I got violent with my mouth. And I slandered people. And not just in my own culture, but it's, it's uh, as I was exposed to different theological systems. So, for instance, the contrast between the Reformed perspective, so the Calvinism, Calvinist perspective, and the Arminian perspective. If you know anything about that, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, don't worry about it. Um, but it is, I came to this position where you do some reading and you do some studying, and I'm thinking, like, how can anybody that's part of the Reformed tradition within Christianity possibly be saved? They're all going to hell because they're lying about God. And again, I, I became really harsh and really critical. Now, again, I'm not going to show, I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hands, but have you ever been critical of the body of Christ? Somebody in another segment, in another denomination, not preaching heresy, but has a very different personality, perspective, upbringing, um, 
and, uh, and just how they pursue and how they respond to, to God. I know, I know brothers and sisters in the Lord who love a liturgy. They love a religious calendar. They love the system and the order, and they, they are able to worship God in that kind of environment. It's not how I'm wired at all. It's not how I came to Christ. It's not been part of my life experience. So there's part of a liturgy, like, I, just, I don't understand, I don't get it. It feels like really religious, and I'm rebellious, and I want to rebel against anything that may not be of Jesus. Anybody feel me? So what I'm trying to communicate, and what James is trying to communicate, is why you get so arrogant and proud and violent in your mind and in your heart and with your mouth that your brothers and sisters who've been delivered from their sin, their darkness, their condemnation, and are now in the image of God, restored in his light, in fellowship, part of the body of Christ, we're now unified. What are you doing? Knocking, throwing stones at, chopping down the bride of Christ. Stop it. That's what James is saying. We have an incredible amount of power with our mouth. Our mouth speaks what our mind and our hearts meditate on. So out of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is Jesus' teaching instruction. Out of your heart, these are the words that you were speaking to your spouse, to your children, to your Bible study group, to those, you know, the birds of the feather flock together. Out of your experience, out of your perspective. And James, throughout this whole thing, is submit that mind, submit that heart, submit that tongue to Jesus, and wait before you speak, and make sure you're in line with him, because hard things do need to be said. But make sure that it's not out of a heart that's filled with pride, which he dealt with at the beginning of chapter 4. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the hum humble. So therefore, we submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. He draws near to us. We humble ourselves before him. He lifts, lifts us up. So therefore, brethren, don't speak evil. Don't slander one another. Why? Because when... You're speaking evil of a brother or sister. You're standing as judge. You're, you're sitting in their life context and your life context, and now you're seated in a position of a judge uh, determining what is right and what is wrong and whether this person is just or unjust. So again, a lot of the conversation, this, I titled this morning, Justice. Because a lot of the hard language that we have about each other and the hard language that we have about the culture is our demand for justice. We see so much injustice in this world. When you look into the world, how much brokenness do you see in our culture? You see it in poverty, you see it in wealth, you see it in our different races, in our different classes, you see it in perversion, you see it in leadership, you see it. We see brokenness in our culture everywhere. I was talking in the prayer service this morning. I've been spending probably this last month, I've been in and out of listening to a lot of secular music. And the purpose is, is just listening to the message and the content. What is it that those in our culture, what, what, how do they see life? How do they see their life? How do they see humanity? How do they see how they fit into 
the narrative. I see, the God, I see God's worth as truth, and this is the narrative of why we exist, how we exist, what we exist for, what our past is, what our present is, what our future is. What does the rest of the world say? And it's fascinating listening to, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, because there's all these different narratives of this demand for justice in the midst of a very broken world, and everybody sees the brokenness, not just the believers in Christ. Everybody sees the brokenness, but they approach the solution through a variety of different ways. But here in the body of Christ, we're told not to be a judge, not to slander, not to... um, not to seek to find fault, not to be in that position of condemning others, because when we do so, we put ourselves in the position of God, who is the source of the law, who is the only judge of the law, and he begs this question of, who are you to be the judge of anybody? And the word for another there, it's somebody who's different than you. So in the New Testament, so when Jesus says that he's going to send another helper in reference to the Holy Spirit, the word for another, it's another of the same kind. Who are you to judge another? It's another of a different kind. The reason why we judge and have so much, we have so many stereotypes, we have so many, um, you know, filters over our life that can just clog up the truth but when we interact with somebody who is different from us, we lack understanding. They're different. They have a different culture. They have a different background. They're a different sex. They're from a different class. They grew up in a different place in the country. They have a very different lens and understanding uh, just in their own life experience. And it takes a lot of effort to get to know that person and their differences. In the body of Christ, we are told we are one. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and he creates Adam and Eve, they are one in God. They sin, and there's brokenness. From that brokenness in that narrative, we watch the division of the languages, because when sin gathers together, when brokenness gathers together, sin reigns and sin rules. I mean, that's the whole narrative of the Old Testament, and not not to fellowshipping with the world and its culture and pursuing idolatry, all these definitions of God that are outside of his definition. But as we gather together now through as believers in Jesus Christ, we are, we are back together in unity, not broken, not restored, but we are now one in the body of Christ. New Testament, in, its, in the implication of that teaching, there is no longer male or female. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer rich or poor, no longer black or white. We are one in the body of Christ. So therefore, it's it's having your personal relationship right with your Savior. And when you are right with him, this is now when we begin to engage in our other conversations. And this is something that we press into every day. I was in a bad mood yesterday. All I wanted, when I'm in a bad mood, leave me alone. I just want to work. I need to sweat. I need to work it out. I need to just put some earbuds in, listen to some music, listen to a Bible study. I don't want to be interrupted. I just need to work. I'm in a mood. I don't know why. Let God work this out in me. Anybody else? 
And again, like I'm kicking against my, Julie interrupted me multiple times yesterday as I'm trying to work, and I'm just, I'm just in a funk for whatever reason. I don't know if it's allergies or what, no reason whatsoever, just in a funk, and I just wanted to be left alone. But in my, in my I wasn't slandering my wife, but my language and my speech to my wife yesterday, it wasn't gentle. It was harsh, it was cutting, it was short just because I was in me and Lord deal with me, like recognizing it and just let me process through some work so I can sweat things out. That kind of, like when you get in that position, I was in a mood or whatever, sometimes it, it's, it may take five minutes, it may take five hours, sometimes you just need to have a good night's rest and you wake up refreshed the next day and it's all gone. I don't know what process that you have to go through, but it's the same kind of idea when it comes to our our opinions and our judgments about the rest of the world, whether it's in the body of Christ or outside the body of Christ. Take some time. Have a conversation with God. Be slow to speak. Lord, help me to understand myself in this. Help me to understand the other side. Let me know what's true. How do I engage? I know that you and you alone are the judge. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount the very thing, that this very same thing that we are not to judge with what judgment with, that we use, that's how we will be judged. But Jesus' exhortation in that judging and not being a judge is he's telling us to make sure that you are seeing clearly first, right? Get the plank the big old log that's in your eye and in your perspective, get that thing out of the way, out of your mind, out of your heart, in your relationship with the Lord, let him deal with it so that you can see clearly, so that you can make the right judgments of the world and the circumstance around you. And this is, this is the difference between being a legal judge and being a judge who, like, you need to have discernment. So that, the difference between a doctor and a judge a doctor needs to make assessments. He is looking at you, looking at your body. There's something wrong. There's something off. They identify what's wrong and what's off and provide the solution for the healing and the treatment, right? That's a doctor's job. There may be some behavioral correction there of you're sick because X, Y, and Z, so stop doing that, and, you know, that's going to be your solution. But that contrast of we are to be doctors, we are to be discerning, we were to let the Lord examine our own hearts, examine our own hearts with the Lord in that conversation as we interact with other people. We're always examining others. Where are they coming from? Who are they? Why did they say this? Why is my boss acting this way? Why is my employee acting this way? What's the kid doing? All the, we're making these judgments and these discerning conversations in our head day in and day out. The caution that James is offering in regards to the mouth is don't be slandering with it. Now, sit in the perspective of the class system. So we're going to start talking about the rich here in a second. So in this lens of James, it feels like he is addressing the poor in the congregation and in the body of Christ, those who would be oppressed. Just sit in our own culture. How much does the middle and poorer classes judge and condemn verbally and publicly in our culture in regards to the rich. Like just even Friday, the Dow dropped 1,000 uh, points on Friday. We have a fascination with the rich. So right underneath the article, the Dow falls 1,000 points. It's now a statistic on how much Bezos lost in his fortune on a singular day. Who cares? 
right? But we're fascinated with those who are wealthy, those who have, those who retain, uh, the, whole, the whole conversation of the redistribution of wealth. It's a very real thing. It's a real thing in the Bible. It's a real thing in our culture. Those who hoard, I sit in my daily job. It's all in the sphere of philanthropy and Christianity and where those things intersect. I work around and do accounting for the very wealthy in the body of Christ. And I sit in, in narratives and stories. I mean, just a couple weeks ago, I worked with a foundation who they raised $10 million in one weekend that's to fund, to help fund foster care issues in our nation. There's 400,000 children in our foster system today. Not only in our foster system, but those who are transitioning out of the foster system as young adults. What is a foster child? Somebody who has been abandoned by mom and dad for all kinds of sin issues. Who, I mean, all kinds of stories. So here's a foundation in one weekend that was able to raise $10 million. How did they raise that money? Some rich people were able to give significant funds to be able to support a very worthy work in the name of Christ in our country. Do you agree? So James here, he's not condemning people who have wealth. The condemnation that he is addressing is those who have wealth who are living their life independent of God. Now, James is talking to those who believe in Yahweh as God. He is talking to people who believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the one who has saved them from their sins. He is talking to the body of Christ. And the, what he is observing in his culture, in his time, and we can observe this in our culture, in our time today, is those who believe in God, who believe in his word, and are still living their life independent from God anyways. So listen to this language. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will, and it's literally this language, let us, using God's language. In, in Genesis, God said, let us create man in our image. At the Tower of Babel, God said, let us go down and see what's going on when God divided the languages of the world. James is picking up on the exact same type of language. When, it's, when we say, let us let us do this. Let us, let us go to this city and make this investment. He's dealing with the merchant class, so those who are in business, who are selling services and products. Let us go make some money, and you're sitting in your financial analysis of how much money you're going to make in the city. Let us go spend some time there. We're going to buy and sell. This is a singular word in the Greek. It's where we get our emporium from. So you think of just a grand emporium where you go as a consumer to, to buy and sell all different kinds of products, and we're going to make a profit. The focus of the heart that James is looking at is those who are sitting in those life decisions independent of God. Let me do it. Let us do it. Of course I believe in God. Of course Jesus died for my sins. It comes to my business world, it's all about me. This is, this is the heart that he is addressing, but he's, but he's getting to the heart of the, con the heart of the matter is, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And he get, he's got... Um, sit in his question, what is your life? I mean, this is, this is a question that human beings have been asking since the moment we were created. 
This is the subject matter of religions. This is the subject matter of human philosophies. This is the subject matter of science and evolution. What is your life? Are you just a dash on a tombstone? I mean, this is, this is what he's getting to. This is as he, as he gets into the language in regards to weeping and howling, you know, your riches are corrupted, your, your garments are decaying. He, he's talking about the reality that at the end, none of us take anything with us. Our life is like a vapor, and a vapor is steam. The next time you go and you boil some water for tea or you're boiling some water for noodles, spend a minute and just think, of God's word in the Old Testament, the New Testament defines your life. The, the brevity of our life is steam. You see this water convert into the steam, you watch it rise, and it just disappears. It's there for a moment. It shines for a moment is this word. And then it's no shine. It's visible, and then it becomes invisible. How many of you know all four, rephrase, how many of you do not know all four of your grandparents? That quickly, you are two generations removed from your grandparents, and they're already forgotten. Your children, they know you. Your grandchildren may or may not know you, depending on life circumstances. Your great-grandchildren, even more rare. Great-great, you're gone. You're a dash. You're now, a, you're now in an ancestry study should the Lord return. Oh, here's their names, and that's all I've got. Your life is a vapor. So the context, he's, he's trying to get us all grounded in the of answering this question, what is your life? You have been created. You have been given the gift of life, of existence. And it has a content. It has a purpose. It has a worth and a value. You are intentional. You are not a mistake. You have issues. You have brokenness. And the demand is in all of who you are, make sure that you, all of who you are, make sure that you are submitted to your creator in every moment of every day. God help us. Again, the, the, the message of the cross that our God became like us to die for our sins as, as a gift, as, a, as the solution to our brokenness, the crosses to what defines your value, to what defines your identity. Your identity is not wrapped up in your business successes. It is not wrapped up in your possessions, your gold and your clothes. It's not wrapped up in your culture, in your citizenship in your race, in who you know. It's not wrapped up in your job. It's wrapped up in the source of your life, and we are told that the source of our life is our God, and our God is Jesus, the anointed Messiah. So again, he, he, he's, he's trying to capture the reasons for 
the divisions and contentions in the body of Christ, in his culture, in his time. And again, we can sit in all of this in our time. So whether it's just relationship issues, class issues, political issues, he's getting to the root and to the heart of the matter of every single one of us is created. So why do we lift up ourselves in opposition to another brother and sister in Christ? As a judge, don't do it. Why do we lift ourselves up in our business successes as, as merchants, uh, whether we're providing products or services, don't do it. And then he shifts into a landowner. Now, we live in a very urban community that nobody in this room more than likely is earning your income off of the land. But again, as, as James is dealing with this culture, there are merchants, they're making their money from... Uh, again, for products and services and those who are financing their, their households and their lives from the land. So this is in the beginning of chapter 5 when he's talking about weeping and howling. Again, the, the perspective is everything that you have is going to corrode and come to nothing. In your pursuit of building up stuff, you're defrauding those who are working on your land. You're withholding their wages. You're heaping up treasures in this earth. And again, Jesus deals with all of these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Where your heart is, where's your what? There's your what? Where your heart is, there's your treasure. There's what you consider to be valuable. Same thing, he talks, uh, Jesus gives us the instruction that we are to give the daily laborer their wages. And in this context, you're dealing with the poor class that is working for a rich landowner. The rich landowner is somehow defrauding the laborers out of their just wages. And they go, if they don't get their just wages on a daily basis, they don't have the money to buy the food that they need for themselves and their family on that day. And they're going home empty-handed to an empty table that they can't, they have nothing to eat, or what are they going to do? They're going to shout out to God for provision and for help. They're going to shout out to God about you and how you defrauded them. And what does it say? That those prayers, they don't only reach heaven, it says that they enter into the ears of God. He hears, he knows, he sees and this is, this is the warning of don't be, don't put yourself in the position of being condemned and judged by God when you say that you love God, you love Jesus, yet at the very end here in verse 6 of this phrase, you have condemned, which again, that's being a judge. You've found fault, you are critical, and you stand in the position of judge and condemned. Here he's returning back to this phrase that I brought up last week, you have murdered the just. And I, I just, I really feel like James is dealing with people in the body of Christ who have committed physical murder and felt just in doing so in the political climate of the day. This is the narrative that we have of what was going on in his culture. This is not just murder in the heart. Yes, he's addressing that also. This is violence with the mouth and with the hand. You have murdered the just. James is known as James the just. He does not resist you. And this is the therefore statement. So boiling all of this language down in regards to wisdom that comes from God, how it's 
pure and how it's peaceable, how it's merciful, it's gentle, it's willing to yield without hypocrisy, without partiality. He's, he's, he's dealing with our relationship with our God, having all of us grounded in him, caution with our mouth, caution with our language, uh, caution with the, uh, the pursuits that we have in this world and all of our cultural nuances. And he's boiling down his very initial statement of letting patience have its perfect work. Right? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, various tribulations, various circumstances in your life. Your faith is being tested. Let that test produce patience within you. The patience that James is focused on in regards to this work, in regards to your relationship with God, your relationship with other human beings, all revolves around waiting for Jesus. Look at what he says. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the arrival of the Lord, until the arrival of Jesus. And this is, again, this is getting your eyes up. What is your life? Why do you exist? What are you doing today? Where are you going in the future? And having that right mind and that right relationship with the Lord, knowing that Jesus is coming, it has its way of calming us down and giving us the right perspective in the midst of circumstances that are greatly agitating, that well up great anger and pain and hurt. You sit just this afternoon, go pick your favorite news site and just go scan through the headlines. And will you be irritated? Will you be angry? Will you want to lash out at those who are doing unjust things? Do you want to cry out to God, fix that? Get rid of them. Help. So when we sit in the agitations of the culture and the world and life experiences, when we are filled with the peace of God, which Jesus is peace personified, when you're right with him and you interact with all of the injustices that you see in this world, you know and you have faith and you have hope that when the judge comes, he is going to make everything right. And this, this is the position that gives me peace. There's a whole bunch of stuff in life that just d does not make sense to me. I don't get it. There's a, there's a whole bunch of things in the word of God that don't make sense. We're going to go spend some time in the Old Testament. We're talking about, in fact, I put a, I put a Bible study magazine out the table. So if there's two of them out there. First come, first serve, whoever gets it. There's an article in the back of it. What do we do with the violent speech of the Psalms? We're sitting in James telling us not to have violent speech. And then you go read some of the Psalms that are extremely violent. God, kick their teeth in. Kill them. God, do I not hate who you hate? There, there's, there's a context that we'll study when we get into that. 
But again, it's, it's getting back to this being grounded. When the king comes, when the sovereign king comes, all injustices will be made right. And we are told earlier, his mercy triumphs over judgment, right? His mercy swaggers, boasts over judgment. And his mercy in our lives, in our hearts, in our context needs to boast over it. It needs to swagger over the judgment that we want to pronounce. The anger that gets welled up. Again, just submitting that to the Lord. Jesus, I am praying for your kingdom to come today. But first in my heart, in my mind, in my mouth, in my behavior, let your kingdom come. But, oh, Jesus, are we waiting and yearning for you to come and do away with evil and do away with the lack of justice that we see everywhere. It's this therefore statement. Be patient, brothers and sisters, for the arrival of Jesus. And again, the exhortation, the example that he provides. Look at the farmer. Does a farmer have to be patient? It takes a long time for a fruit to yield out of a seed. Soil has to be prepared. Seed has to be planted. That seed has to be watered. You're dealing with an agricultural society that is absolutely dependent upon the early and latter rains of the season to produce a healthy crop. A farmer demonstrates a tremendous amount of patience for the precious fruit to yield itself. That picture, that, that cultural picture James is bringing up for them to understand. The necessity that we must have as we wait for Jesus and his fruit and the future harvest to come. We are waiting, therefore be patient, strengthen your hearts in Jesus. His coming is approaching, is the word Again, he gets back to it. Don't grumble. Don't groan. I, this, is, this is such a great word. Um, I mean, again, uh, I, just, I just, there are so many teachers of the Bible. And again, we have, we have, you know, lots of famous ones in the culture. And we can get around ourselves and have our little one-on-one -on -one conversations and just groan and complain, and mumble, and murmur about, did you hear what so-and-so was teaching this time? That guy's going to end up in hell, you know, and he's a total brother in the Lord, and again, just these different perspectives. Do not grumble against one another. Why? Because you're, you're putting yourself in a position to be condemned to be judged that you're are you really in a relationship with jesus or are you just pretending and you're outside the body of christ and you are still condemned and dead in your sins you have not been made alive by the one who has life and the warning again that just all of this is language to snap our attention to reality the judge jesus is standing at the door he's listening to the conversation Look at the prophets, look at Job. The Lord again. 
He's very compassionate. He's merciful. The whole, the whole language there about let your yes be yes and your no be no is just be a man and a woman of integrity. You don't need to add all of these extra things to your O's and your commitments. And Jesus deals with these, these exact same teachings. So all of this, James, is honing down to our relationships with each other in the body of Christ that is only built upon the foundation of Jesus, right? God himself is very compassionate. He's gentle and he's merciful and he's loving. You know, we we know all of these definitions if you've spent any time in the word of God. He is not hateful. Yes, we're going to go sit in the Old Testament and we're going to deal with a lot of war. David was a man of war. There's a lot of violence. God used war. He sent his children out to war and brought them back from war. He sent foreign nations to discipline his children. And I put discipline to chastise them as as warriors and just how the culture was decimated because of their sin. God uses violence And we're going to see this in the Old Testament. There's a purpose. There's an understanding of our God working in the hearts of men and women and working that violence out of us. He is the one who is compassionate. He is the one who is merciful. He is the one whose mind and whose heart that we need in this very moment today. As you're looking at the political spectrum, What are you praying for? How are you processing through that? As you sit in your household, what are the conflicts that are going on? What are the wars? What are the struggles? What's the language that's coming out of your mouth? Again, I'm sitting in conviction yesterday. I I wasn't violent, but I was harsh. I was short for no reason other than I'm just having a moment, and that's wrong. God correct me, and God change me. What's your language at work in regards to your boss, in regards to your employees, in regards to your customers? I sit in judgmental language that can escape my mouth and that definitely comes into my ears day in and day out, and it warps me. It becomes a filter over my heart that I start speaking and, you know, thinking and speaking the same things that I need to be free from. And where's the Holy Spirit sitting with you right now in that circumstance and that person that just inflames you? The language that James is using is that that flame that's in you, it's going to consume you. And you need that fountain of living water of the Holy Spirit to douse that fire out of your soul. So Holy Spirit, we look to you right now. We're asking that you come and that you be that river of water. We have fires that that burn within, Lord, that, that rage against self, that rage against this world. Some fires need to be doused, and we're asking that you do that through your Holy Spirit. 
That same imagery, Lord, some fires in us need to burn and they need to rage because fire is also used to, to refine us and to burn out of our souls all those things that don't belong there. Lord, I'm asking that you free me from my, my stereotypes, Lord, my prejudices, my, um, my background, my political narratives, my religious narratives. Lord, I want my heart and my mind to be clean and pure in the sacrifice of your son. I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. I want to be like you. I want to be a mature man of Jesus and not a toddler still just flailing around in in my tantrums because I'm not getting what I want. Lord, I want the purity that comes from the hope of seeing you. So make yourself known to us today, Lord. Make your life visible. And we don't just want moments, Lord, in a vapor here and there, but we want our lives to be fully in you and consumed by you and for you, directed by you. Work out of me, Lord, the darkness and the filth and the anger, the the judgments, the pursuit of things that make me comfortable. Work out of me, Lord, the identities that I have of establishing myself as great in opposition to another when truly, Lord, you and you alone define me. We love you tremendously. Fill us with your spirit now as we worship you, as we remember your body and your blood, your sacrifice, your covenant, the forgiveness and remission of our sins. Let us remember you, Jesus, always. It's in your name we pray. Amen.